0: Heavenly Father, it is, it is all gift that you would speak to us. So let your word be very loud to us. But maybe today it could be like a velvet hammer as it comes with some hard edges, but your word is never meant to crush us, but to revive us, restore us, refine us, to change us. And that's the book of Hosea. that will come with many hard words, but all of them meant to lead us to life. What we need most during this time... It's not even challenge and it's not, it's not growth and it, it's not change in our lives. We want all of those things. I pray you would prepare ourselves to hear that. What we need most is to, to leave this time more impressed with Jesus Christ. So do you make them loud in our songs and our prayers and communion, in our bed as we leave this place and throughout this week until we get to gather again as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, there's a legend that the shortest sermon ever preached came out of a New England little tiny Puritan church in the, the early or late, uh, it was probably about the late 1600s. Pastor gets up wearing his long black robe and he walks down to, to, to this pulpit on this elevated platform and he comes up and he stands behind it. And he looks out at the congregation, kind of leans over the lectern, the furrowed brow, and he just says this, repent. And he just goes and he sits down. Now if you're hoping for a one word sermon today, you will not get one. Um, But in that awkward silence, there was a muffled cry, and then another, and then another until the whole room was sighing and groaning. It's like, can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine if that's the Sunday you decided to show up to church? You know, would you have, when you hear that story, you go like, oh, I wish I was there. When I hear the word repent, the first thing I think is, oh, that is life. That is life, which is truly life. Or you think, who are you to tell me what to do? Probably for a lot of us, there's a sense of dread. We begin to think of our choices and the feeling of shame maybe fear. A number of years ago, we did a, um, we did a multi-week series on Jesus and money. And uh, money is another one of those words that conjures up a lot of emotion. And so what we did is we, t- we picked this strategy. To, as we went through it, I said, Here, here's the goal. Here's the plan. We are going to talk so much about money that we are going to take the awkward out of it. By God's grace, we sort of did. We we realized that when God brings up money and possessions and he he talks about how to steward them and how how they can consume us and how do we enjoy them and how do we do this, that that what God is doing, he's trying to invite us to life. He designed us. He knows how we work. And so he says, oh, I I want you to know how to handle this thing that's powerful. Well, we're gonna take the same approach as we go through the book of Hosea. We are gonna talk so much about repentance that I pray we take the awkward out of it. I don't want to defang it, we don't want to neuter it, but we do want to normalize it. See, sometimes repent and repentance, it's, it's a thing that maybe you remember doing back at a camp one time when you felt really bad, you came to faith in Christ, no, that's such a wonderful moment. Or maybe when you think of repentance, it's that thing you reserve for the really big sins and the things that get exposed every so often. But the the Christian life is is one of just ongoing, regular, everyday repenting. Or as the book of Hosea frames it, 20-something times, return. So we're going to look at the first chapter of this incredible book, and an invitation to life which is truly life. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me? God's grace, we're going to get through chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. This is God's holy, helpful, flawless word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Feel free to grab a seat. There is a tremendous number of things to unpack in this chapter. There's a lot of Bible background that's loaded into it. There's a lot of play on words that are, that are happening. Um, in some ways, this will feel like a, a Bible study primer so we can try to get our heads around what's happening. One of the things that's helpful to see is the setting of the book. When did this take place? And we see this in verse 1. So the Lord comes to Hosea, and then there's these kings that are listed. There's, there's a number of kings what are known from the, the southern tribes. And so Israel, the history of Israel is actually at fractured. And so at this time, it had fractured a couple hundred years before, and the, there's, there's 12 tribes. Ten of them went kind of took the northern part, and then two went to the south. And so it lists out some kings from the south, and then also this king from the north. And so Hosea is speaking into already a divided people, and they, they fractured over a number of different reasons. I won't get into those, but he's speaking into that community, and then we get some dating that happens by listing these kings. And so you have this reference to Jeroboam. His last year was something like 753. Hezekiah's was 687 B.C., and so Hosea's ministry, the time that he was prophesying for the Lord, was likely in the the, the last half of the 8th century before Christ. And this was a time marked with a lot of really good things for God's people and some very challenging things and some, some kind of impending doom on the horizon. So it was a great time for some and a real bad time for others. This is how James Boyce talks about it. It was an age of luxurious materialism, apparent religious devotion and activity, freedom, and even apparent national security in which politics, law, and religion all seemed to play into the favored people's hand. Yet, as Isaiah and Amos, those were also contemporaries of Hosea, they were prophets at the same time, yet as Isaiah and Amos and Hosea also show, it was the worst of times because the hearts of the people were empty. Religion was shallow and corruption was rampant on every hand. In particular, law was manipulated to the advantage of the rich and much if not most of the religious activity was a mere show. It's always interesting when you read stuff like that and then you look at the country you live in and the cultural time and you see that's us you could have said the same thing 100 years ago. I mean, it's, the, the reality is that the tendency to be religious on the outside, but to have our hearts far from God has always been the tendency of God's people. The structure of the book, this might be helpful to think through how. The book is 14 chapters, but how's it, how's it laid out? Chapters 1 through 3 will be the story of Hosea and, and Gomer and their, their family It really kind of centers around this enacted parable. And then you get to chapter 4, In chapter 4 through 10, what you're going to hear is accusations. This is a sharp book. And in these accusations, most of them revolve around this idea of you are unfaithful to me. Over and over again, God is going to say you are unfaithful. And then chapter 12 through 13, you get to more accusations. But this time, it's not an an accusation to Hosea's contemporaries. It's actually an accusation to historical Israel. It's, It's saying, it's like you've always been this. Let me go back, and all the things that you've shown yourself unfaithful, it's a way of saying this is just the normal pattern of God's people is to get to a place of unfaithfulness. Beautifully, though, inserted into these accusations, it's chapter 11, and then the book ends with chapter 14. If you go read those chapters, they're just full of hope. Even in the midst of the hard and the sharp words, there's hope. There's a lot of symbols in the book of Hosea. So in the book of Hosea, you'll see this prevalence of images. So God's people would be compared to like, you're like a silly dove. You're a dumb bird. You're like a, a light morning cloud or like dew that goes away early. You had all the promise to bring rain for the abundance of crops, but you just faded in the sun. Talk about God as A lion a husband as a mother who doesn't want to care for her child as a nurturing parent I mean it's really really big imagery and, and some of the things that are happening if you want some handles as you go through this book is to clue into these images because they're, they're used because they say a lot when we say oh God is, is, he's like a kind father as it paints a picture that's so experiential for us where he's like a lion who can tear It paints a picture for us. And then right in the midst of these symbols is a story. And these first three chapters lay out the story. And it's this this parable truly of of grace, but it's a raw story. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, He said, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And if your your first Sunday is here at Redeemer, welcome. I'm sure you're glad that you picked it here. You brought your neighbor that finally agreed to come. I can't believe the pastor just said that. It's a tough text. There's a lot of debate about this word. Um, Did it mean that that Gomer was a a full-time prostitute? she working in one of the, the temple cults? It was a common practice. Does it mean she was this already, or was this God saying she's going to become this? The word itself actually um, is most often used not in, in contents of like full-time, this is what I'm doing, but this the pattern of my life is I, 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 I'm, I may be freer with my body and choices than would be honoring to God and to my husband. Um, in chapters 2 and 3, she'll be called an adulterer. Regardless, what God was saying to Hosea is I want you to marry someone who's going to break your heart. She's gonna be painfully unfaithful to you because you, my people, have been painfully unfaithful to me. I was a pastor. Uh, I was like within the first month of being a pastor and a number of years ago, and a guy reached out to me and he said, hey, I'd love to get together. I, I wanna to talk about my marriage. And, and he came in and um, sat down in my office and just looked at me inside and he just said, I'm married, I'm married just five or six years and my wife, she's just so unfaithful to me and I don't know what to do because I don't want to leave her. I really want my wife back. That's raw. And I say that recognizing that that's the story perhaps of people in this room or perhaps family members, people that you love. But that's all the more reason that Hosea uses it. Because when he says this, you, you get it. You get both the, the, the rebellion, but you also get the, the patience and the long suffering, the kindness of God. We'll see this stunning in chapter three, but, but Hosea 1 really is more about these children that are born. In the background is tricky, the names are tricky, there's a lot of history that goes into this. As we get down into verse three, it says so he went into Gomer, the daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son, and the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Um, this is referencing back to a number of different stories, likely first Kings twenty-one. And this, this, this valley of Jezreel. Jezreel got known as this place of bloodthirst or, or bloodshed. And it came out of the story of the king of Samaria, Ahab. He wanted a vineyard from a guy named Naboth. And his wife, Jezebel, and, 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 well, Naboth said, no, I'm not going to give you my vineyard. You got your own vineyards. Leave my vineyard alone. This is from my father. It's from his father. I'm going to give it to my sons and their sons. You can't have it. It's part of our family. And Jezebel, Ahab's wife, the king's wife, comes in and says, you're the king. Just take it. So Ahab has him killed. And then God pronounces a judgment, and, and, and his judgment actually comes from this name in here, Jehu. He says, Jehu, I want you to go and basically use Jehu to bring an end to Ahab and Jezebel and then their family lineage, and it was bloody, and it was violent. And so what's going on in this text when he says, I'm going to punish the, the house of Jehu for the blood of... Uh, and and you just going like, what's going on? And so I'll give you a couple of options some people would see the house of Jehu as synonymous for the house of Israel. That it just, that there's actually a little play on words that are happening there. Or it could be that Jehu was more ruthless than he was supposed to be when he enacted God's judgment. The problem with that is the Bible actually commends Jehu for what he did. I would say the most compelling thing i found and why it says this punishment is coming from the house of Jehu is that Jehu ultimately ended up no better than Ahab. Ahab was an adulterer. He was he was. He was unfaithful to God. He was an idolater. Jehu ended up doing the same thing. He might have enacted God's judgment on that family, but he ended up keeping all the foreign gods and all the idols around just as much. He's saying, you're unfaithful too. God is judging Israel for their spiritual adultery. Verse two says, for forsaking the Lord. Another aspect to this is the word Jezreel, this name. So here's my son, going to name him Jezreel. It means God scatters. And as you look at this this text here, we actually see that happening in verse 5. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What it's saying, I'm going to break their military power in the valley of Jezreel. And if you know your Bible history, you could go back to the book of Judges and the story about Gideon, one of God's men that raised an army up, and they won victory. Guess where they won it? In the valley of Jezreel. So in that place, they had victory. And now because of their unfaithfulness, they're going to be defeated. And this name, God scatters. They were scattered. So it happened to the northern tribe in 722. A Syrian king named Tiglath-Pileser Ty- 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 III, he came in and he carried them off their land. So this son, is this, they, they would see him and it would be named this. They might have some signposts to what God was doing. And it goes on. She conceived again. Verse six and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, and if you get nothing else out of this sermon, perhaps you pick up some like baby names. You know, we got a lot of pregnant people. You know, it's like chapter it's one like, don't name your kid this. Um, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy. You know, one of the sweet little girls, Archer. No mercy. Or it could be not pitied. No compassion. Not loved. God's people can only live in rebellion so long before the long suffering, slow to anger, about in its steadfast love and mercy says enough. In fourth grade, um, I figured out how to uh, game the disposable uh, thermometers that the nurse would give you. And so I I would, I would be like, oh, I'm sorry, teacher, I'm not feeling very good. Can I go to the nurse's office? Yes, Rob. You can go to the nurse. So I go to the nurses. I'm not going to tell you how I gamed it, just in case you want to try to do this and get out of school. So I uh, I would go there and I would take you know they give me the thermometer and they go in the other room for a couple minutes. Back then it was an instant, and so you know they go in the other room. By the time they came back and I'd hand it to them sheepishly, be like, "Oh, it looks like you have a little bit of a fever." I said, "Yes, yes, I do." And so they would call my my grandma who would come get me, take me home, and feed me ice cream. And so I obviously learned to skip school every day. So every day I would go to school. This happened for about a week and a half in a row, where every I just. I don't know, I thought it was better, but I just don't feel good. And so I go to the nurse, and and I overplayed my hand. I should have, like, spaced it out, right? Because my parents got wise, teacher got wise. They call my mom, and my mom's sitting there. I'm in the hallway outside my fourth grade classroom. I hear my teacher say, listen, if he misses another day, he repeats fourth grade. No mercy. (laughs) Sometimes the mercy we need is actually judgment. Kind of like getting a DUI or getting fired from your job or a friend straight up calling you out. But even in this, there's these glimmers of hope. We see it in verse 7 of this text, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. There's so much in that verse, just hold on to it. But, but there's actually hope in verse six. She conceived again, bore a daughter, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. That last little phrase is a really tricky one. And, and we don't do this a ton, but, but if, you, if you pull out the original language and you translate it like really strictly, here's what you get. We'll put this up on the screen. The, that last half of verse 6 actually says this. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, and I shall completely forgive them. That's really strange. It's kind of hard to get your head around. And there's all sorts of debate about this. That's why the translations, if you go look at different translations, they'll come out in different ways. Let me read it again to you. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel and I shall completely forgive them. See, the confusion of a verse like that, what it's capturing is actually the conflict that runs through the book of Hosea. Like a parent that loves their child but is heartbroken over their choices. Like a husband that loves His wife. It doesn't want to give up. It's like this guy telling me, Rob, I don't know what to do, but I'm not leaving. I want my wife back. God throughout Hosea, what makes Hosea such a rich book and a tough book is God is conflicted. Not in the way we are, but there's a a conflict. No mercy. I will have mercy. Tim Chester says it like this. He says, it's a hint, perhaps, that God's people might have a future beyond judgment. Then we go on in the text. Let's look at the next one. When she had weaned, no mercy. And what's interesting about that is when it talks about weaning, at this time, God, the, the, the people would have, would have weaned at about age three. So there's a child born, and God is giving these declarations. He's giving His people time to respond. But after three years, there's, a, there's another conception. She had ween no mercy. She conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Oh, these are sharp words. One of the things that's interesting that you might notice is that that up at verse uh, 3, it says, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibboleth, and she conceived and bore him a son. But it doesn't say that about the daughter. And it doesn't say that about the second son. It doesn't say she bore him a son. And the text, what it's doing is creating a a vagueness to the situation based upon Gomer's life choices to say, like, is this child actually mine? Which brings a different coloring to the renaming of this son. This is not my people. The, the, The word, technically, you could say it's like, I am not yours. Or, I am not, I am for you. When you hear that phrase, that I am phrase, that goes way back to the second book of the Bible is is God was calling Moses to deliver his people out of captivity in Egypt. And and Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? The Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And he says, you tell him the I am sent you. It was God's self-revelation. I'm the uncreated God. And in this text, it said, I'm not yours and you are not mine. You got to remember the context. I mean, this was about about the worst thing you could possibly hear. Some of you maybe have experienced this pain of a parent. I, I don't ever come back. I disown you. This is raw. This is raw. But remember the context. Century and century and century of God trying to call his people back over and over and over again. And if we trace this out throughout Hosea, I really think what's being said is not so much that I'm rejecting you, it's that you've already rejected me and I'm just naming it. G.I. Packer, um, just incre- probably one of the most influential people in my life from a, from a theology standpoint, just an incredible, incredible man of God. He passed away a few years ago. He spent most of his life um, in Canada and he was part of the Canadian Anglican Church for, for decades, for decades. And that denomination began to make compromises with the Word of God and, and he still stayed and still fought and still tried to, to, to work for reform within it and they kept, they kept making decisions and they finally got to a place where he said they, they have falsified the gospel. And so he ends up withdrawing his, his membership from this denomination. He has to find a new denomination. He was being interviewed and he was asked, he said, you know, Dr. Pachter, you say so long, why did you finally decide to leave? And his response back to them was this, I didn't leave them. They left me. When God has Hosea name this child, not my people, he's saying, I didn't I haven't quit you. But you've quit me. I feel this right now. You might feel this right now. Thank God verse nine is not the end of this chapter. There's this beautiful little word. Just start verse 10. Just three characters. Yet. In the midst of our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our obstinance, sometimes our hardness, God interrupts it with this. Yet. Judgment's not the end of the story. Derek Kidner and his book, The Message of Hosea, says it like this. He says, the three persons are a crescendo, first of judgment, but in the end, a crescendo of grace. Grace has a way of interrupting oracles of doom. Thank God for the word, yet. The ESV study Bible says like it says, Hosea depicts Israel's unfaithfulness with a number of images from family and nature. Israel's like a promiscuous wife, an indifferent mother, an illegitimate child, an ungrateful son, a stubborn heifer, a silly dove, a luxuriant vine, and grapes in the wilderness. Yet, Israel's unfaithfulness and obstinacy are not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that outstrips the human capacity to comprehend. You cannot outsend God's grace. Yet. Let's think about this. Hosea 1 is sort of like the Ephesians 2 of the Old Testament. If you know the chapter of, of Ephesians 2, it begins that, you, that we were born in this condition of being rebels to God. We're enslaved by Satan. We live in darkness, doing all of our own things, wandering away. But then you get to verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, Oh he's given us a salvation that we didn't earn. He's given us a grace that we can't afford. He's granted us faith that we didn't have that we might believe and be saved and forgiven. And then he has all these beautiful promises of the Lord and oh you are secure with him. You are set up in the heavenly places. Yet Hosea 1 has a lot of bad news. Yet it gives way to something glorious. We'll see more of this in Hosea 3. But the one that's appointed here in verse 11, it's Jesus. It's pointing forward to this one that's appointed that could bring this in. And let let me me bring back in verse 6 in this kind of wooden translation and see how it points to Christ. Listen listen to this again. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, and I shall completely forgive them. I will have no mercy on the house, and I will completely forgive them. It's talking about Jesus. The the place this ultimate gets lived out. Tim Chester says like this is a moment will come when God will both execute judgment without mercy and offer mercy without judgment. That moment is the cross. At the cross, Jesus experiences the full wrath of God. As a result, his people are forgiven. The gospel, the good news of Christianity is the story of the one true son who had no need for mercy because he never misstepped. Going to a cross where the father turns away from him. Where all of the judgment, all of the justice, pleasure, all of our rebellion, all of our sin was put upon Christ for all who trusted him. That the father might not look at his one true son, that he might look at us His not sons and daughters and finally say, you're mine. That Christ would get the judgment and we would get the mercy. True sons and daughters of mercy. This chapter, as I said, is full of a play on words. There's this continual reversal throughout in unexpected ways. The the, the name Jezreel that we start with, it means God scatters, but here's where it's applied. When you're sowing crops, God scatters, it means God sows. And so here in verse 11, it it talks about the children of Judah and the children shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And chapter two, you're going to see this, it's going to give way to something glorious, that what looks like barren and brokenness and, and, and drought and judgment, it will give way to abundance. God's people did, in fact, get scattered. They were taken into exile, the northern kingdom, in 722, the southern kingdom, in like 586, but God then brought them back. And God didn't more than just bring them back. He, he, he brought them in as one. See, that was the point. The kingdom was divided. He was trying to unify them. And actually, if you're here and you don't have, uh, and you don't come from, from a Jewish lineage, you're actually included in these verses. Paul uses them in Romans 9, where he says, I'm gonna call people that are not my people. I'm gonna call them sons of the living God. That he gathered you back in. And how many? Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. What looks barren and broken and hopeless will give way to something so stunning. So, in light of this, then God tells Hosea, I want you to preach now to the people and tell them this You are my people. And to your sisters, say this You have received mercy. Remember the context when Hosea was called to preach that. God's people, many of them were half-hearted. Their their, their worship was just a, a, their religion was just a veneer. It's a lot of corruption, a lot of apathy. And God looks at him and says, mine. He says, loved. One of the great things about having your sin exposed is that it amplifies and displays and highlights the greater grace of God. Whatever you're sitting here wearing right now, this is God's final word through Hosea in this context, mine, loved. Ernest Hemingway has a short story called The Capital of the World, and it revolves around a story of a a father with a teenage son named Paco, and they live outside of Madrid, the Gets in a fight with the father, says, I don't want you anymore. I'm done, I'm out of here. I'm moving out. I'm moving to Madrid. So the son leaves and, 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 and the father, so Paco leaves and, and the father, he, he goes to Madrid. And he goes to look for him. Day after day, he's looking for him. He's looking for him. He can't find him. So the father goes down to the, to the newspaper and he says, I want you to, I want to put an ad in the newspaper and I want it to say this. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And Hemingway knows exactly what every human heart needs because this is, this is what happens. The father shows up. He gets to the front of the Madrid newspaper and he looks out and he sees 800 young men named Paco standing there. Whatever it is, whatever you got, wherever you've misstepped, wherever you've failed, wherever you've come up short, wherever you've been indifferent, wherever you know you deserve judgment, Hear Christ speak a better word. Hear him say this, mine, loved. Mine, loved. Hosea is given to us so that that truth might become real to us. Is he loves a wife, who wasn't always lovely. As we learn about a God who loves a people who are not always lovely. I got the sermon title from George Schwab. He calls Hosea the most scandalous book of the Bible. And it's not because of the escapades of Gomer. It's because the unbelievable lengths that God will go to bring his people back to have judgment interrupted, to have sin forgiven, to give second and third and thousands chances to return, to tell the not loved and not pitied girl, you are deeply loved, and tell the cast out son, you are forever mine, and all because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a a stunning chapter that is raw and real, but what a great salvation, which is raw and real. I simply ask that you would make the truth of what Christ has done more palpably dazzling to us today. That you would rekindle the affections of the half-hearted in the room. That you would transform the hearts of the hard-hearted that have never come to faith, that they have heard of a love that they will find nowhere else. That you would buoy up those that are passionately living for you that there would not be the fear of ever fading because you never give up. You just hear the words mine and mercy, mine and pitied, mine and loved, that it would resound over and over and over. It would be louder than even the loudest sins. In Jesus' name, amen.